Well, to start our time off this morning, I, I want to ask you just a simple question. And the question is this, is, is how important are your credentials to you? You see, your credentials are those things that you have spent a large portion of your time striving for. It could include things like an education. Maybe you have a degree, uh, a master's, or if you're super smart, people call you doctor because you have a PhD, not to be confused with a PFD or a PDA. Your credentials could be the things that you have. You want people to notice you. So, so what do you do? You pour your time and your effort and your energy into these things. Maybe you want your family to look perfect because you worry about what people are going to think of you. Maybe you've worked your butt off because you really want that promotion because it means that you've climbed the corporate ladder, which means more success and more money and more people looking at you in just awe and wonder. You see, friends, maybe it's simply just wanting to be known as the nicest person. You see, your credentials... Your credentials are the things that bring the most credibility to you in this world. And although not all of those things that I've listed are bad, but if we're honest with ourselves, at the end of the day, how many of us uh, have placed all of our worth, all of our approval, all of our acceptance into these things? And, and here's the reality is that, that even with some of those things, we do that with God as well, don't we? And so I want to simply ask you, is, is do you feel like your credentials are a trivial pursuit? Scripture says, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but you lose your own soul? Now, if you haven't been here for the last few weeks, or, or maybe you're checking us out this morning, uh, I want to just say it's so good to see you. It's really great that we could be here this weekend and that we could worship together. But if you don't know what we've been doing, for the last few weeks, we've been working through a sermon series that we're calling Joy in the Midst of Anything. And what we've been doing is we've been exploring this book uh, called the Book of Philippians, which is a love-filled, encouraging letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Church of Philippi. And, and in this letter, Paul is wanting to remind the church of what God has done for them, that he has given salvation and life, which comes through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, uh, which is God's Son, it's because of God's grace that we can experience the forgiveness of our sins because we have found something so much better in Christ, something so much better than the rest of the world. You see, church, this morning, I want to spend some time encouraging you that your greatest priority in your life isn't found in and of yourselves. It's not found in your credentials. It's not found in appearing that you have your stuff together but rather that your greatest priority in your life should be Jesus because he's the only one that saves. Nothing else will do. And so with that, why don't you open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We're going to be in uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 11, and let's read our text together this morning. It says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble of me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, 
a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness underneath the law, I'm blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, by any means possible, that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Well, our our text starts off with Paul reminding the church again. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Now, I don't know about you, but I love the book of Philippians. It's it's probably my favorite book in the whole New Testament uh, because it's one of the most encouraging, one of the most repetitive uh, books in Scripture, and it also addresses some very significant theological issues that are being faced by the church that I believe are actually so relatable to us today. Paul writes to the church, And he repeats the same thing over and over and over again. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And and what Paul's actually doing is, is he's longing for the church to grasp and understand what he's saying, that true joy doesn't come from anything else. But true joy comes from seeing and knowing Jesus as our Lord. So when he start, or when, uh, sorry, what he wants the, the church to do is start viewing the, the circumstances that they find themselves in, the situations that they find themselves in, from a, a different viewpoint. Because what Paul knows is that unless the church shifts its minds, its priorities, its focus, and ultimately, right, their, their, their hearts, that, that if they don't do that, that if they listen to the outside voices speaking into them, that the church is going to suffer and it's going to go sideways. And so when Paul writes this letter, he's, he's not writing a letter, but he's, he's being a good spiritual father and overseer of the church. I, I mean, as you read this book, there is no doubt in your mind that, that Paul has this deep fatherly love for the church. He loves them and he sees the most potential in them. He wants them to be successful in their devotion to Christ. He wants to see their their Christian living because it reflects Jesus. He wants to see the church flourish in their mission that they've been called to, which is to make Jesus known to this world. You see, this letter is actually a great picture of our hearts as pastors and elders in the church. But, But here's another minor reason why I love the book of Philippians. It's because Paul... Is actually quite amusing in it, right? Uh, he, he does something that I think stereotypes 99% of pastors. Obviously not me, but everyone else, okay? I mean, what he does is, is, is now written into Pastoring 101. You learn this in Bible college. So when, when Paul says finally, here's a little hint. He's, he's not even close to being done. 
okay? So let me, as, your, uh, as one of your pastors, but kind of a semi-guest because I, I haven't preached out here for two years, but let me fill you in on something, that your campus pastor, Eldon, is notorious at this. Okay, so when, when uh, Eldon preaches and he says finally or lastly, uh, it's one big trick. Okay, so you just guys need to know that uh, because he does it all the time. Uh, because believe it or not, when he says finally, um, he, he actually has three major points, two sub points, five illustrations, four points of application, plus somehow he's going to sneak in a story about food, right? It's, a, it's an amazing gift that Eldon has, all right? And so I hold him and Paul both at just a very high esteem. You see, if you read the book of Philippians from start to finish, you're going to read this same thing over 16 times. Rejoice and find joy in the Lord. You see, by nature, we are people who are very slow to learn. And if you don't believe me, you can ask my wife, Heather. She's got a whole list of things that she reminds me all the time that I need to learn. Okay? But here's the thing is that when we see this message repeated a time and time and time again, what, what Paul's hoping for is that the church would grasp this and understand this. A, a few years ago, Microsoft actually did some research on how often someone needed to hear something to understand it and live it. And what they concluded was that it takes 20 times to hear something to actually do it. Okay? So Heather, keep reminding me. I'll keep trying. Okay? And so this is Paul's encouragement to the church. He says, rejoice in the Lord always, because the joy that Jesus offers, as A.W. Tozer puts it, is a joy that flows out from the throne of God. It's pure, and it's refreshing, and it's sweet, everlasting. It's something that we can't even comprehend. And so here is Paul, who has a different perspective that the church needs to hear, right? Because Paul's not with them right? What, what we know is that Paul's not writing this letter from the comfort of the church. It's, he's not writing it from the comfort of his home. He's not on holidays. He's not penning this letter, you know, on some vacation, but rather he's in jail. And he's been persecuted, and he's been beaten, and he's been bruised, and he's been thrown into the slammer, and he's been chained to a guard, and everything about his life in this moment sucks, He's facing persecution because he did one thing, and that was preach the good news of Jesus. And this good news actually uh, turned both the political and the religious systems of the day upside down. It turned it on their heads, and Paul's the one who suffers for it. You see, if there was anyone who could be given permission to not be filled with joy, it's Paul. But instead, what does he do? He, he models to the church that true joy doesn't come from anything else other than knowing Jesus. Nothing else will ever do. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Uh, the second thing that Paul does in our passage is he addresses a, a huge uh, theological tension that's occurring in the church. It was an issue about credentials. You see, the church of Philippi was made up of primarily Gentile believers. These would be Roman and Greek individuals who, who didn't have a Jewish background, but they came to know Jesus as their Lord, and, and, and they just they, they dove in. But what happened after the establishment of the church was a, a group of Jewish converts called the Judaizers came into the church. They started to advocate that to be a true believer in Jesus, that you had to embrace Jesus as your Messiah, but they also taught that you had to hold on to all the forms of Judaism. 
In particular, the Judaizers were, were teaching that all non-Jewish Christians needed to follow the Mosaic law as they had and to be circumcised as they had to be saved. And so uh, uh, for them, their faith in Christ was Jesus plus something, which, which we all know or we should all know is actually contrary to the gospel. And so Paul uh, writes this letter to the church, and he calls it as it is, and he says to the church, he says, beware of the dogs, look out for the evildoers, uh, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, right? Because they're there. Now, when Paul talks about dogs, he's not talking about the dogs that, that sleep at the foot of our beds or the dogs that, that snuggle up to us or the dogs that we just, we love so much that they come and we let them lick our face, right? He's not talking about those dogs. He's talking about the, the wild pack of dogs that you find in places like Mexico. You, you guys know the ones I'm talking about, right? They, they all look the same. They're from the same uh, gene pool. They, they look the same. Uh, they act the same. They're, they're the dogs that foam at the mouth. They're the dogs that, but, that bite and devour you. Uh, you can actually see the fleas on them. Those are the dogs that Paul's talking about. And he says, warn them because they cause disease and death. And so what Paul's communicating to the church is this, is that if someone comes into the church and causes division, if they come in and they teach about anything other than Jesus, to, and, and, and if it's, it's Jesus plus this, then, then all that they're doing is they are, they're, they're mutts, they're dogs. Watch out for them. You see, the Judaizers, the, the ones who are teaching false doctrine, need a swift kick because they're going to bite and destroy the souls of Christian believers. And again, one of the reasons why I love Paul is because he calls it how he sees it. A spade is a spade. And what's really important to know is that, that Jews in Paul's time, especially the really religious Jews in Paul's time, had a term for all Gentiles. Do you know what, he called, do you know what they called them? They called them dogs. And so Paul is just passively, aggressively throwing this back at them. And, and, and I, I love this, and I see such irony in this, because, because that's what they are. You, you see, there was a lot of division in the early church, even from the start. And, and there was a lot of division over really stupid things. Are you circumcised? Are you not? Do you follow this law? Because if you don't, then you're not a believer. Now listen, if you haven't been to, uh, to a church a lot, or, or maybe you're new to this faith thing, when you read your Bible, uh, you're going to be asking yourself the question, why does the Bible talk so much about circumcision? Right? Because it's a major theme that's found in Scripture. And you may be thinking to yourself, is this one of them drinking the Kool-Aid cult types of religions, where instead of Kool-Aid, you have to be circumcised? You should have laughed there. That was supposed to be a joke, Okay. You see, in the Old Testament, circumcision was an important religious practice because it was the outward symbol that showed that you had entered into the covenant family. Any male who was Jewish was instructed by God to be circumcised. Any male Gentile who converted to Judaism later on in life was first to be circumcised before they could enter into, into the faith. If you were Jewish and you bought a male slave, well, he's a part of your household. And so they would be circumcised. 
And what the, what the gospel teaches and what Paul taught in Colossians 2 verse 11 was that, that when you come to Christ, you were automatically circumcised. Every one of us, male and female, but, but not by a physical procedure, but, but rather by Christ doing something amazing. The Bible teaches that, that he performed a spiritual circumcision, which was the cutting away of, of the, the sinful nature that you had. You see, it was no longer, when Jesus came, it was no longer about physical flesh, but rather a spiritual transformation of the heart. He removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. You see, it was, it was no longer physical. Wayne Grudem, in his book, The Systematic Theology, wrote, uh, one becomes a member of the true church by being born again and having saving faith, not by anything physical. You see, the means of entrance into the Christian faith is voluntary, it's spiritual, and internal, and it's, it's through that that God transforms every aspect about who we are. But here Paul finds the church he loves, the church he cares for, the church that he started, right? He sees this, this group of Judaizers coming in saying, if you don't follow the Mosaic law, then, you ha then, then you're not of the faith. You see, this, this one theological position that the Judaizers were preaching was so problematic for the church. Because of what, what, the, what they were saying was, yes, Jesus plus this, that, and the other thing. You see, this theology was infesting the church, and so Paul calls them out. He says, you are the mutilators of the flesh. That's not the gospel. The, the gospel is this, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Right? All of us who deserve death... Right, Because of our sinfulness, Jesus, Jesus healed that. He fixed that. He changed that. When he, Jesus himself, bore our sins on the cross so that we might die to sinfulness and live for the righteousness that's found in Christ. You see, the gospel is the good news that God became man in Jesus Christ. He lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died in our place. Three days later, he rose from the dead, proving that he was the son of God and, and um, offering salvation and forgiveness to, to anyone who repented and believed in him, period. You see, there was nothing that, that we have done to, to save ourselves, that we are saved by grace through faith alone. But the question that I want you to think about is this, is how many of us have believed the, the, the lies of the Judaizers? How many of us have believed the lies, the false doctrines that are taught? And so Paul, fully aware of this distorted gospel, goes into full defense mode because he loves the church. So what I want to do, uh, and kind of what Paul wanted to do in this passage, was actually address the false teaching of the day. And, and just as Paul addressed this bad theology, the first thing that I want to do this morning is address some of the false teachings of our day, and I want to help show you how this teaching has actually infiltrated the North American church. And so the first thing that we're going to look at is the confidence of personal credentials, now, I've had the great privilege of, of serving in the church uh, since 2004, not this church, but in various different, different roles over that time. And over the last 15 years, I have interacted with thousands and thousands of different people from all different backgrounds, 
uh, some with religious backgrounds, others not. And, and one of the biggest roadblocks that I come against as I talk with young people uh, is, is the thought that says, it doesn't matter what I believe as long as I'm a good person. Or I hear something along the lines of, well, I believe in a God, but I don't go to church, but I'm a good person. Now, just a show of hands, how many of you have heard this before? Okay, this health theology belief is known as the God grades people on a moral ladder theology. Or if we were to put a theological term behind it, it's called moralistic therapeutic deism. Basically, this is the belief system that holds five things. The first is that there is a God who exists and he created and ordered the world and he watches over human life. Secondly, that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair uh, to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Uh, we, we hear this all the time in society that we just have to love people. That's how we're accepted by God. We have to love people. Thirdly, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Fourth, that God does not need uh, to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And lastly... The most damaging is that good people go to heaven when they die. And, and you know what, folks? This is a highly held belief in our society. How, how often do we hear this from our neighbors, from our family members, or people that we know? Or, or maybe this morning you sit in here and you believe that yourself. And you know what? As I, as I did some research and as I looked, I, 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 I found this story where Jesus actually addresses this issue. It's found in Matthew 19, verse 16 to 24, uh, where Jesus is asked by a rich young ruler, uh, what, what must a man do to inherit heaven? And, and the man comes up to Jesus, right? How do, I, how do I have eternal life? And Jesus responds, well, you have to love the Lord your God, or you have to follow the commandments. And ultimately, what, what Jesus was saying, you have to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you have to love others, and the man responded by saying, well, actually, I've done all those things. And, and I've kept all of those from my youth. I've done them all. And so Jesus challenges him. And he says, actually, have you? Have you? And, and Jesus goes, I, I'm actually going to tell you something that you actually need to get rid of your riches. And you need to give it to others. You see, for this man, he had done all the things that he was supposed to. But he lacked the knowledge that, that it was actually this intimate relationship that you had with God that, that saved you. It was, by, it was by God's grace. It wasn't by doing the right things. Right? So Jesus challenges them. Give up your wealth. Give it to the poor. Give up your identity. Give it all away. And this man believed that he was a good person, but by being a good person, it doesn't save you. It, it, it's complete surrender to Christ. It's the transformation of a heart, soul, mind, every part of who we are. And it says that the rich young ruler was actually disheartened by Jesus' answer, and he walked away full of sorrow because he knew he couldn't do it. But he believed that by doing things that he was good enough, by loving people that he was good enough. You see, it's easy to look at a moral ladder and say I'm a good person because I'm not Hitler, right? Or this morning, I looked, I looked and there was, there was one guy who killed 20 people at a Walmart and another guy who killed nine. Well, is that the guy who killed nine better than the other guy? 
right? And, and, and what we start to do is we, we look at, at people like Hitler or serial killers or mass shooters, and, and what we do is we start to play the compare game that if I'm not bad like this person, then I must be good. And I'm not full of hate, I'm full of love, which is a reflection of goodness. So, so if I'm good, then I must qualify to, to earn a spot in heaven. Basically, what, what God's going to do is accept me because my sins are smaller than that person's sins. And so the, in the end, I believe that I'm better than other people. Folks, I, I want to just say this, that this makes a very poor substitute for the gospel because no one can be good enough. You will never be good enough to get a free pass into heaven because the simple fact is that we are all sinners. And if we're all sinners, what exactly is the definition of a good person? It's completely open to your own sinful interpretation. But Jesus spoke into this half-belief when he was talking to the rich young ruler. He said, no one is good except, except God. No one is good except God alone. Listen, folks, the Bible clearly teaches that even our best efforts or attempts of being good fall short of God's high standard. Romans 3 verse 12 says, there is no one who does what is good. Romans 3.23 says that all of us have sinned and we have fallen short of the glory of God. So if the Bible teaches that no one is good, and if Jesus teaches that no one is good, then the moral ladder theology or moralistic therapeutic deism is the worst theology that you can stake your salvation upon. Listen, the Bible teaches very, something very clearly, that, that you may be a good person, but it doesn't change the fact that you're a sinner and the wages of your sin is death. So, right? It, it, it's just because you're good, it doesn't mean you have the free pass. And so what hope do we have and what hope does our world have if they believe in this theological position? You, you see, you can't place your confidence in being a good person because you and I, by our very human nature, are not good. And even though you may be the nicest person in the room, you may be the nicest person in your neighborhood. You may care for them and love them and be very practical in showing that. And it doesn't change the fact that we're sinners. So that's the first uh, theological hell position. The second is this. is in, in, I would say this is actually probably pretty common uh, in the Bible belt, okay? And it's the look at my impressive spiritual resume. Or we could say look at how religious I am. Now, as I've worked in the church, I've often heard people say something along the lines that, that goes something like this. Well, I go to church every Sunday, and if I go to church every Sunday, that must be good enough, right? I show my religious duty every week. And, and this, is, this is so held in, in the church. But the question that I, I want to ask you is, can you bank on the belief that being outwardly religious is good enough for you? You see, all we have to do to explore and debunk this belief is look at what Paul says next to the church. He says, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness underneath the law, blameless. You see, if you don't know who this Paul guy is, let's just say this, that he's the MVP. He's the all-star, the poster boy of what it means to be religious. He, he would put all of us to shame because he can check every single box of his religious dedication and say, I've done that. You see, Paul is a guy who knows the do's and the don'ts of religious life. He knows how to play the game because every aspect of his life, even from birth, has been characterized by being hyper-spiritual or hyper-religious. You see, previously to his conversion to Christianity, Paul was this guy named Saul. He was a Jewish religious leader. He was the guy. He was zealous for all things Jewish. But just because you're religious, it doesn't mean that you've been saved. And, and I don't know about you, but that is, a, that is a hard word for me to hear this morning. Because I've grown up in the church. Basically, my whole life, I have, I've spent in the church I'm a pastor in a church. Now, let me, let me compare this maybe to my life. If you don't know this, I would say that I am a Mennonite. And I'm, I'm not just a Mennonite, I'm a Mennonite brethren, which is a little bit better, right? Right? I grew up in an MB church, other than a few years where I worked at the, a Baptist church, which I kept telling myself, either this is my hell on earth, or it's my mission field to lead the fallen Mennonites home. Okay. My grandparents are all Mennonites from Russia. I have a Mennonite last name. I can trace my lineage to Friesland, Holland, which is where Menno Simons was from. My ancestral background includes individuals who not only started the first MB church in Russia, but also the first MB church in Canada. Okay? I went to an MB camp growing up. I went to an MB Bible college. I mean, the list goes on and on, folks. One time... Uh, we have this thing in the Mennonite world called the MB Herald. And one time they ran an article on me and it wasn't my obituary. It was like, this is amazing. Like, I have made it, right? And I can dust my shoulder off a little bit, right? I could, I could be like Paul where, and I'm not saying I'm better than Paul. Don't hear that. But I could check the lists off, folks. I, I could believe my own press, and when I look at our passage, right, Paul has a, a very impressive spiritual resume, and I have what I think is a, a not as good, but a, a pretty impressive spiritual resume. And you may be sitting here this morning and go, I have an impressive uh, spiritual religious resume. But I want to just say this, that that doesn't mean you know Jesus. Because our credentials aren't what saves us. Listen again to what Paul says and what he's trying to communicate to the church. He starts off and he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Do you know how important this was to the Jewish people? You see, it was once a baby had experienced the holiness of the Sabbath that they would be able to enter a covenant relationship with God and his people. So if you were circumcised, you automatically became a part of the Jewish nation. And if you weren't, well, then you were cast out. You were an outsider. And I want you to think for a moment, did, did these babies have any understanding of what the significance of this was? Did they have any part in deciding this for themselves? And the answer is no. 
No, because they're eight days old. How, how can you understand the significance of a religious ritual and how can you have a relationship with God based on a physical thing when most babies don't even recognize their parents in the first week of birth? You see, no one can decide faith for you. And, and Paul's saying, I'm Jewish by birth, but salvation doesn't happen because of a physical ritual. And, and I want to say something here, and it may, it may ruffle some of your feathers. Do you know what the equivalent of this is in the church? While I was baptized as a baby. I'm good. I've been baptized. I was dedicated as an infant. These, these were important spiritual decisions that you didn't make. It doesn't mean you're saved. And so you, you were brought up at the church right out the womb. Do, do you know what Paul's saying to the church? He's saying salvation doesn't happen because of a ritual. I want you to check your hearts. Paul continues. He says, I'm from the nation of Israel. This is, this is God's chosen people. This is the equivalent of saying, well, of course I'm Christian. I grew up in Canada. Or I'm Catholic because I grew up in Quebec. And what, what Paul's saying is salvation isn't because of race. Check your hearts. He continues, he says, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, the tribe of Benjamin was one of the most important tribes in all of Israel. Benjamin was the last son to be born to Jacob. And he was the only one of his brothers who was born in the promised land. And when the promised land was divided amongst the 12 tribes, do you know who got the land that is now Jerusalem? What was the, it was Benjamin and his people. Listen, this is the equivalent of saying I'm a Vanderberg or I'm a Dirksen. Listen, this is, this, is, this is so held by people, maybe by you. Just because I have a Mennonite last name doesn't mean I'm a follower of Jesus. This is what it says in Acts 4 verse 12. It says there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Paul continues, he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Can, can you guess what he's saying? He's saying salvation isn't because you follow certain traditions. So you're Dutch. So you're Mennonite. You're Presbyterian or Catholic. It doesn't mean that you're automatically saved. It's your heritage. Salvation doesn't come from identifying with traditions. Paul says, as to the law, if I'm a Pharisee. You see, Paul was the Pharisee of Pharisees. Everyone looked up to him. He was highly respected in the religious community. He knew the law. He memorized it. And, and listen, you may have a ton of influence in the church, and you may be respected, and you may be able to quote the law. But salvation is not because you're religious. Because tons of people are religious, but it doesn't mean they truly, intimately, authentically know Jesus. You guys feeling convicted yet? I am. He goes on, he says, as to zeal, I persecuted the church. You see, Paul was driven and he was sincere. And in his day, the Jewish people viewed zeal as this supreme religious virtue. His zealousness led him to relentlessly try to destroy the Christian church, which made him in the good books with his Jewish people. But here's the thing, folks. A lot of us are passionate. A lot of us are sincere about a lot of different things. 
but it doesn't mean we're saved. You see, salvation doesn't come from your passions. It comes from Christ. It comes from Christ. He goes on to say, he says, as to the righteousness underneath the law, I'm found blameless. Paul was the most legalistic person there was. There was no one that could find a speck of dust on him. He lived his life in a way that many of us should live, but he lived it for the wrong thing. Because it wasn't about, is it black or is it white? What Paul's saying is, I prided myself in being the most legalistic. I've gone through all the rituals. I stand up for the truth. I've conformed everything to fit into this picture of what being the best and most dedicated person of faith there could be. And maybe some of us are like that as well. But folks, let me say this, that salvation doesn't come through the righteousness of men. Uh, listen, as I read through, uh, or sorry, as I read through this this past week, this deeply convicted me and made me rethink my life. And I hope it convicts you. You see, we have to check our hearts because it's so easy to listen to the Judaizers or listen to the false uh, theology or listen to the fact that my credentials are good. And I put all of those things before an identity that's found in Jesus. It's, I, put, I put it before God's grace sometimes. And what Jesus was saying and what Paul was saying is that we, we actually can't do this. Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus uh, turned to his disciples and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Now, I don't want you to hear that you shouldn't try or you shouldn't dig deep into your faith. Uh, you shouldn't have zeal and passion because these things are good things in the right context. Real good can come from uh, being a regular attender at church. Real good can come from reading and memorizing scripture. Our lives should be characterized by obedience to God and his word through our actions, our tongue, our mind, our hearts. But just because we do those things doesn't mean it's an automatic shoe-in for us. We can sit in these seats week after week after week, year after year after year. We can sing louder than Bill, right? We could be the best at praying. We could identify with some of these spiritual things in our lives, but folks, how crazy is it of us to think that, that this automatically means we're saved because we can play a part? Don't believe that lie. Here's what Paul's getting at. That if you chase after anything for salvation other than Jesus, you will be like a dog chasing your tail. Faith is not about spiritual check marks. It's not the means of salvation in your life. If you live this way, you will still be totally and utterly lost. And so this morning, I want to encourage you, as Paul encouraged the church, count everything as loss. Listen to what Paul says. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him, 
that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and I may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Stephen Lawson said this about Paul. Paul had this conversion, this change of heart, this change of mind. And this is what Stephen Lawson said about Paul. He said, Paul had everything except for one thing. He had everything except Jesus Christ. And if a person does not have Christ, they have nothing. If he had everything except everything that he truly needed. You see, Paul realized, realized this. He is completely convicted by this. And in verses 8 to 11, he says, all of this is loss. All those check marks are loss. All those traditions are loss compared to knowing Jesus. They're not the most important thing. Jesus is. He says, all of it is lost. Everything I once counted as the most important thing in my life is absolutely nothing. You see, we can build our whole lives on the wrong things. It happens all the time. And so what does Paul do? Well, he, he does some accounting, some simple accounting for the church. He looks at the liabilities in his life and he looks at the gains and, and what, he, what he concluded was that everything in his life that he once trusted to give him acceptance to God is in the liability column. It's in the liability column. He, he looks at his identity, he looks at his successes, he looks at his credentials, and, and, and he puts it in the loss column. Because the gain in his life is so much greater because it's knowing the resurrected Jesus in an authentic way. You see, something profound happened in Paul's life when he encountered Jesus. From that moment on, absolutely everything changed in his life. Instead of embracing his Judaism, he gives it all up. Where he places his confidence in his identity, and he casts that away. Instead of persecuting the church, what does he do? He becomes the greatest advocate for it. He gave the rest of his life to making Jesus known. And the question is, why? Why did he do this? Well, folks, what Paul discovered is that Jesus is so, so, so much better. And so he submits his life to the only one who could ever save. You see, Paul came to see that all of his checklists, all the things that he had worked towards, all the things that he had strived for, all of the things that he had built his life upon, all of these things didn't save him. They actually condemned him. They made him a slave to it. And again, not because some of these things were bad in and of themselves, but they were bad debt because he, he trusted in them to get into God's good grace books. And I want you to listen to what Paul says himself because there is, there is a very strong word he says. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. Now, I've been watching some British comedy lately and the Brits use this word a lot, rubbish. But I want to ask you, do you actually want to know what this means? Do you want to know what this means? Well, since we're in Agassiz, I'm going to give it a shot. 
What's, what Paul's saying is that if you trust in anything other than Jesus, it's shit. I'm serious. That's, that's what it means. Listen, folks, I'm standing up here because, I'm not standing up here because I want to be controversial. I'm standing up here because I'm highly convicted of this. There is no other word that we can think of in the English language that, that communicates this. Any other word that we have completely downplays and undersell, undersells what Paul's trying to say. The, the true word and the essence of what Paul is saying is the most vulgar of terms. It's the worst thing that you could stake your life on. Listen, if you place your hope and your righteousness and your salvation on anything other than Jesus, it's pure crap. Listen, Paul is speaking against the Judaizers. He's speaking against false theology and saying, church, keep your eyes, keep your heart, keep your mind on Jesus and Jesus alone because he's the only thing, the only one that can truly save you. Paul is 30 years into his faith and he realized I was wrong. This resulted in him rejecting everything putting aside his pride and his ego, uh, right? And, and, and this is his encouragement to the church in the midst of people saying it's Jesus plus this. It's Jesus plus circumcision. It's Jesus plus being a slave to the law. Listen, I'm going to say it again. Righteousness doesn't come from the law, but rather righteousness comes from God because of dependence and faith. It comes from true confession and conviction of sin. It comes from acknowledging that nothing else will be able to save you. You see, Paul placed everything in the liabilities column because he knew that he could gain nothing from them. His heart was turned to God. It was transformed, and he would never be the same again. And what was required of him? It wasn't checklists. It was submission. This is what Paul wrote in Romans 10, verse 1 to 4. He said, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. It's no longer about circumcision of the flesh. It's about the transformation of the heart as we lay aside everything that once was for what's greater. This is what H.A. Ironside said. He said, Paul didn't just simply exchange one religion for another. It was not one system of rites and ceremonies given place to a superior system or one set of doctrines, rules, and regulations making way for a better one. He had come in contact with the divine person, the once crucified but now glorified Christ of God. He had been won by this person forever. And for his sake, he counted all but loss. Christ and Christ alone meets every need of the soul. His work has satisfied God, and it satisfies the one who trusts him. And the question that I have for you is, have you been won by this person? Has he won your heart? And I want to ask you, as I asked you in the, in the very beginning, how important are your religious credentials? Have you placed everything in that success of doing the right things? And I want to ask the question, where is your heart at this morning?
The question that we need to ask is, what are we banking on for our salvation? Are you convinced that being a good person will do? Or playing the part saves? Or are you hung up on the fact that I swore in church this morning? Because if you are, I want to tell you, check your heart. Check your heart because you're missing what Paul's saying. Folks, I, I, I want to challenge you, just as Paul challenged the church, look to the gloriousness of the gospel. The gospel is not a, a doctrine of tongue, but of life. It cannot be grasped by reason and memory alone, but it is fully understood when it possesses the whole soul and penetrates to the inner recesses of the heart. Right? Some of us need to be transformed this morning. Some of us need to, to meet with Jesus this morning. Just as, as Paul had on the road to Damascus. Others of us need to be reminded to watch out for the Judaizers. A few years ago, I, I had a beautiful, beautiful motorcycle. It was a 1983 Honda Magna V65, which was the fastest production bike in the 1980s. This bike was the most beautiful bike I have ever laid my eyes on. It was jet black with custom gray shadowed flames. It had so much chrome on it. It had a custom seat. And people, would, other bikers would stop me and they would want a photo of this bike. It was so awesome. But one day it stopped running properly. And so I took it to the bike mechanic and I said, hey, what's wrong with this? And, and he came back and he said, John, the tank's bad. It needs to be replaced. And so I responded by saying, what do you mean it's bad? Like, look at this thing. It's brand new. It's shiny and perfect. It doesn't even have a scratch in it. And he says, well, it looks good on the inside, or it looks good on the outside, but have you seen the inside? And he took a flashlight and he shined it into the tank and it was full of rust and sediment. And he says, it needs to be replaced. And that's what God wants to do with you this morning. Listen, we come into this place with all different uh, backgrounds and denominations, especially here at our Agassiz campus. We, have, we just come from everywhere. But guaranteed, at one point or another, we've placed our confidence in the wrong things. I have placed confidence in the wrong things. And it's our sinful nature to do that. To listen to say, actually, if I do this, then I'm good. And so this morning, church, Jesus wants your heart. And so what are you banking on for salvation this morning? Are you trusting you're a good person? Do you believe that outward appearance is the ticket? Where is your heart at this morning? Listen, none of us are good enough. It's the plain, simple, sobering reality and truth that I am and that you are and that we are together in need of God's grace, which is found in this wonderful, life-shattering, world-changing thing called the gospel. It's Jesus with no strings attached. Amen? Paul's simple challenge to the church in the midst of the voices is don't get distracted from knowing the truth. Know Jesus Know the power of his resurrection. Share in his suffering. Become like him in his death. And it's then, only then, that you can attain the resurrection from the dead and have abundant life because you will have Jesus. Church, don't listen to the voices of 
of tradition. Don't listen to, you know, the voices of our tradition that say Jesus plus this equals salvation. Don't listen to the voices that say you're good enough and that's what matters or that you're nice or that you love. These are some of the oldest lies that are in the book and it's been happening for thousands of years and all it's doing is leading us away from the righteousness from God that depends on God's grace, which is sure and steady because of Jesus. God is who he says he is. He will do what he says he's going to do. We just need to simply turn our hearts to Jesus this morning and then be transformed. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, I have, uh, I don't think I can think of a time in the last 15 years where I've been as convicted as I've been convicted. And so I, I humbly come before you and, and acknowledge that I have, have got it wrong in areas of my life. I, I acknowledge, you know, as, as one of the pastors of this church that, that sometimes outward appearance won over you. And so I confess that, Lord. I confess that with every part of who I am because I'm a sinner who needs you and we're sinners who need you, Lord. And so I thank you for this word that, that, that tells us that, that there's so much life found in your son and not just rituals. God, thank you for, for the folks that sit here, for the grace that they're going to show me this morning because I need it. But God, I would pray that you would transform and change their hearts where maybe they've put their trust in something else other than you, Lord, would you meet them anew this morning? Would your Holy Spirit work in their hearts, convict them? And Lord, would they submit to you because you're the only way for us to know God. It's the only way for us to have salvation. That if we believe in you, believe that you died and rose again, and we confess with our tongues that Christ is Lord, then we will be saved. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for our church. Thank you for the faithful servants that are serving here this morning. We just pray a blessing over the rest of our time together, Lord. We pray this in your great and awesome name. And the church said, amen.